Thank you, Dana. Would you reach for your Bibles and stand with me this morning as we prepare for our scripture reading? Pastor Bruce will be concluding his series on the Ten Commandments. We'll be turning to Exodus chapter 20. We'll be reading verses 1 through 17. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17, the Ten Commandments. And Pastor Bruce looks at the Tenth Commandment this morning, coveting the sin no one wants to admit. We will read the Ten Commandments this morning. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Father, we come to you this morning and ask that you would just reveal the areas of our hearts and our lives where we covet uh, and where we sin against you, that we may turn from it uh, and draw closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, how many have memorized the Ten Commandments throughout this series here? Who, who thinks they could recite the Ten Commandments or they could write them out if they had to? Right, we got one hand raised back there. Anybody else think they could do it? Yeah, we have another one, another one, uh, and hopefully, how many think they could recite or write out at least half? You could do five out of ten. Oh, now more hands are going up. Well, that's pretty good. Uh, if, you, if you will, take out this insert here. You know, one of the goals in our series on the Ten Commandments has been to, to know them, to learn them, and uh, this is kind of a list of them, an edited version, if you will, of the Ten Commandments that Zach just read for us in Exodus chapter 20. And so let's say this out loud together. Let's recite the Ten Commandments. Uh, This will be, obviously, our concluding message uh, with the Ten Commandments. And so let's do this together. If you have your insert here, God's blueprint for behavior and blessing. So commandment number one, let's say it together. You shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Number five, honor your father and mother. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Number ten, you shall not covet. And of course... Uh, this last one is 
what we will focus on this morning. The tenth and final commandment, which God says, you shall not covet. Dennis the Menace. I'm sure most of you recognize Dennis the Menace, the cartoon. One of my favorite cartoons. In fact, one comic strip has a picture of Dennis looking through a Christmas toy catalog. And with excitement, Dennis looks up and he says, Wow, Mr. Wilson, this catalog's got toys I didn't even know I wanted. (laughs) We can all relate to that. But what's not so funny is the story that appeared in the 2003 edition of USA Today. In fact, it was the cover story, and it had the headline, In America, You Are What You Own. In fact, a picture should be coming up on the screen. It's the same picture that appeared in the USA Today article, and it's a picture of the Craven family surrounded by all their stuff outside their home in California. And the article starts out with a pop quiz. I'll throw out the pop quiz to you. It's, uh, it's this. Our nation is steeped in A, laws, B, ideals, C, cultures, or D, stuff. And, of course, the answer is D. We are a nation steeped in stuff. The article goes on, and it says, From Maui to Manhattan, our capitalist engine has given rise to temples of stuff unrivaled by previous epochs, resulting in homes that often are shrines to the latest consumer goods. The reality is, the truth of the matter is, we live in a culture that covets the next thing. Jesus said many things that stand directly at odds with the way most people live today. But of all the things that Jesus said, perhaps none contradicts the value of our consumer culture more directly than what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, 15, when he said, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For once life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. But of course, in our culture today, most people really do believe that life does consist in the abundance of the things we possess. We're always trying to get more for less. Always spending, but never satisfied. So perhaps we should stop here for a moment and ask a question. It's a question that's in your notes and it's come up on the screen. And the question is this, do you belong to the cult of the next thing? Do you belong to the cult of the next thing? Now, it's it's really easy to get enlisted due to our covetous hearts. One pastor confessed in the magazine Christianity Today, he says this, I belong to the cult of the next thing. It's dangerously easy to get enlisted. It happens by default, not by choosing the cult, but by failing to resist it. The cult of the next thing is consumerism cast in religious terms. It has its own litany of sacred words, such as more, you deserve it, new, faster, cleaner, brighter. It has its own deep-rooted liturgy, charge it, instant credit, no down payment, deferred payments, no interest for 90 days. It has its own preachers, evangelists, prophets, and apostles, such as admin, pitchmen, and celebrity sponsors. It has, of course, its own shrines, chapels, temples, meccas, like malls, superstores, club warehouses. It has its own sacraments, the credit card and the debit card. It has its own ecstatic experience, the spending spree, 
the cult of the next thing central message proclaims, crave and spin, for the kingdom of stuff is here. So why are we so tempted to belong to the cult of the next thing? Well, the answer is because we have covetous hearts, as we're going to see here in a few minutes. Rather than being satisfied with what we have, we're always craving the next thing. We're always craving something else. Instead of being content, we covet. And so no wonder God comes to us, just as he did to the children of Israel, and he says in this tenth and final commandment, you shall not covet. God knows our hearts. And yet, what I've discovered is that coveting is the sin no one wants to admit. So, let me be the first to admit. I struggle with this sin. I struggle with this commandment, this sin of coveting. I remember when I got my first job sacking groceries at Food Barn, um, North Oak and Berry Road. And I remember how excited I was when I received my very first paycheck, you know, the official paycheck. And I thought, man, who could ever want more money? And the answer came quickly enough, me. I remember Darla and I moving into our first apartment when we were married. And it was a nice apartment up by the airport, two-bedroom with two full baths. And I thought to myself, man, who could ever want more room than this? And again, the answer came quickly enough, me. I remember the first car that Darla and I bought, first brand new car we ever bought. In fact, it's the only brand new car we've ever bought. We've been married 20 years now, and it was a Toyota Corolla, four-door car for my wife. And I thought, man, who could ever want a nicer car than this? And again, the answer came quickly enough, me, I do. In fact, I remember the first and only home my wife and I have bought. It's a modest three-bedroom, two-bath house, two-car garage. We've lived in it now for uh, about 15 years. And I thought when we first moved in, man, who could ever want a bigger home? And again, the answer was me. So I admit, I struggle with this commandment. And I'm sure if you admit it, you do as well. But it's the sin that no one wants to admit, coveting. So let's take a look at it. What does God mean in this commandment, this tenth and final one of coveting? Well, notice number one, our first point here. Coveting starts with unholy desire. It starts with unholy desire. Coveting is strictly forbidden by the tenth commandment. And let's look at it again, what God says In verse 17 of Exodus 20, he says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now, the key word, obviously, in this verse is the word covet. And to make sure there's no misunderstanding, God warns us twice. Two times, he says in verse 17, You shall not covet. You shall not covet. So what does it mean to covet? Let's get a working definition going here. Notice this. To covet means to crave. It means to yearn for or to hanker after something that belongs to someone else. Now, listen, let's just admit it. We are a hankering people. I like that definition. 
We are a hankering people. We hanker after things, and we live in a society that thinks we ought to be hankering after even more things. The problem is we hanker after the wrong things. We covet whenever we set our hearts on anything that is not rightfully ours. John McKay, in his book, calls coveting a consuming desire to possess in a wrong way something belonging to another person. The problem, therefore, what God is trying to get here is not simply wanting something we don't have. It's wanting something that someone else has. They have it and we want it. We covet it. And we don't want them to have it necessarily. And so since coveting has to do with wanting or hankering after something, it's a sin of desire. And yet, not all desires are sinful, are they? Not all desires are unholy. I mean, God made us to be creatures of desire. Our desire for food reminds us to eat. That's a good thing. Our desire to be useful in society motivates us to work. Our desire to provide for our family motivates us to work. Our desire for friendship draws us into community with one another. Our desire for intimacy may even drive us to get married. And so God has given us many healthy, holy desires. But like everything else about us, our desires are what? They're corrupted by sin. And this is no different. We often want the wrong thing in the wrong way at the wrong time for the wrong reason. And this is what the Tenth Commandment forbids. Now, This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember Adam and Eve? Before Eve took the forbidden fruit, what did she do with it? She coveted it. This was not because she admired it as a piece of fruit, but because Satan tempted her by telling her that if she ate it, she would be like God. So Eve took the fruit to gain something she was not intended to have. And we've been sinning this way ever since the beginning of mankind. But this raises a question. And the question is this. At what point then does our legitimate God-given desires become unholy desires? When does legitimate desires become coveting desires, if you will? Well, coveting occurs either when I desire something I have no right to have, or when The desire becomes the controlling passion of my life so that I begin to believe that my happiness now depends on the acquisition of that item or that person. For example, a new house may be nice. A new house isn't necessarily even wrong. But my happiness does not depend on a new house. If it does, then I'm coveting. Some of us may hear me like, man, God, just give me a new husband even. And then I'd be happy. No, it doesn't even work like that either. The moment I trick myself into thinking this item or that person is necessary for my happiness in life, then I have crossed the line into coveting. And there are all kinds of things we covet. There are all kinds of things we hanker after. We usually associate coveting with either possessions, property, or people. And rightfully so. 
You may have noticed that the Tenth Commandment mentions various things we're not to covet, such as your neighbor's house, your neighbor's spouse, or even your neighbor's livestock. How many of you have coveted your neighbor's livestock? I didn't think so. I think now most of us can probably say with honesty, man, I've never coveted my neighbor's donkey or his ox. But how many of us have coveted our neighbor's house? Maybe his car. Maybe their boat. Or even our neighbor's spouse. To summarize, the Tenth Commandment lists several things that we are tempted to covet. However... This list is not meant to be complete because it ends by saying, notice it, you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. In other words, we are not allowed to covet anything at all. God rules out every unholy desire. Now, as we think about this last commandment, there's something unusual about this tenth commandment that distinguishes it from all the other nine commandments before Notice this in your notes here, the heart of the matter. The Tenth Commandment goes straight to the heart where coveting starts. That's that's what's so unique about this last commandment here. The other nine commandments explicitly forbid outward actions like murder or stealing or adultery or lying. And as we have seen, these nine commandments, they, they do also forbid sins of the heart like hatred and lust. But the first nine commandments, they generally start on the outside, outside behaviors. And then they work their way in as we learn to apply them. But what's different about this commandment is that it starts on the inside first. It goes straight to the heart. As Alistair Begg writes in his book, coveting is distinct from the other nine commandments. Each of them involves observable behavior. But a covetous heart may not be immediately obvious to others because it is totally inward. This is why Martin Luther said, This last commandment is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright people. To people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended against the preceding commandments. We read the Ten Commandments. We, we hear the Ten Commandments. We have sat through a series on the Ten Commandments, but if we're not brutally honest with ourselves, we will delude ourselves, deceive ourselves into thinking, oh, I keep the Ten Commandments. But when we get to coveting, oh, man, we realize that we are not only nailed, we're caught in the very act. As Luther recognized, this commandment, more than any other, makes us realize what great sinners we are so that we understand what a great Savior Christ is. The Tenth Commandment. It seems to have the same effect on the Apostle Paul in his life. Paul, like so many of us, went through the first part of his life assuming, hey man, I can can keep all the commandments. They're not so hard. I can can keep them. He assumed that he could measure up to the perfect standard of God's law. After all, he did not steal. He didn't lie. He didn't commit adultery. And yet, when he came to the Tenth Commandment, the law, he says, exposed his sin. It revealed his heart. 
And here's how he describes his experience in Romans 7, verses 7 through 8. Listen to what he says. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. As Francis Schaeffer wrote, you shall not covet is the internal commandment which shows the man who thinks himself to be moral that he really needs a savior. The average such moral man who has lived comparing himself to other men and comparing himself to a rather easy list of rules can feel like Paul that he's getting along all right. We're doing fine in life. But suddenly, Francis Schaeffer says, when he's confronted with the inward command not to covet, he is brought to his knees. In other words, what this all is saying and meaning here is God's law against coveting. It's what truly and really convinces us that we are sinners in need of salvation. For who of us can honestly say, I've never coveted. And even now I don't covet. No one can say that. Why? Because God knows our heart. And yet, if we're honest, it's the sin we don't want to admit. So what happens if we're still deceived by our covetous hearts? What happens if our unholy desires are not controlled by Christ? Well, that brings us to point number two here. Coveting then leads to deadly desires. It starts with an unholy desire. But if it's not yielded to Jesus Christ and his power, then coveting leads to deadly desire. Now, it's no surprise that most people think of coveting as a relatively minor sin. Somehow it just doesn't seem to be in the same league with the big sins like, well, after all, murder and adultery. But whenever we're tempted to minimize the danger of coveting, we need to remember that God did include it in the Ten Commandments. And furthermore, coveting is condemned everywhere else in the Bible. Do you realize Jesus listed this sin, the sin of coveting, right up there with theft and murder and adultery in Mark chapter 7? And Paul claimed that people who are characterized by this sin of coveting will not inherit the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 6. So how bad is coveting really? I mean, what kind of danger are we facing here with this sin? Well, notice this on the screen. Coveting can be just as fatal as any other sin. It can be just as fatal as any other sin. That's why Jesus warned his disciples about the danger of coveting in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, when he said, take heed. In other words, be warned. Beware of covetousness. Why? Jesus goes on and explains when he says, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. The Puritan Thomas Watson, he gave this vivid illustration of the danger of coveting when he said, As a ferryman takes in so many passengers to increase his fare that he sinks his boat. So a covetous man takes in so much gold to increase his estate that he drowns himself in perdition. How dangerous is coveting? Listen, coveting can seek us down to hell as fast as any other sin. 
just as it did in the story Jesus told about the rich fool who sold his soul for more riches. This is why God included coveting in the Ten Commandments. God knows that unholy desires can quickly turn into deadly desires. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, he says, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. As Calvin said, if covetousness is not dragged from its lair, it destroys wretched men so secretly they do not even feel its fatal stab. Coveting is that deadly. And the temptation here for myself and for even all of us this morning is to walk away thinking it's not that bad. This isn't that big a deal. And the deception is, we're really the only ones that know, because it's such a sin of the heart. And yet God knows our hearts. Listen, don't be deceived. Coveting is deadly. It's like a virus within us, and it's killing us even when we don't see it. So please take heed to God's warning. Coveting can be just as fatal as any other sin, which should cause us to stop and ask, a rather important question. What does my heart desire? Right now, what does my heart desire and where will that desire lead me in the end? I want to show you an example of the sin of coveting from the story of the Old Testament, the grapes of wrath. It's the story of King Ahab. And the story of King Ahab is an example of what happens when unholy desires quickly turn into deadly desires. Of all the Bible stories about coveting, and there are several of them we could turn to, the juiciest is the story of King Ahab and the grapes of wrath. Some of you may be familiar with the story of King Ahab. The Bible calls it, in 1 Kings 21, verse 1, an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. And then it goes on to explain that the vineyard that was Naboth's vineyard was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. This was the perfect setup for a story about coveting. Because what you have here are two men, but only one piece of choice property. The incident began with nothing more than a desire. King Ahab noticed how nice Naboth's vineyard was and how close it was to the royal palace. And the more he thought about it, the more King Ahab wanted that vineyard. It was a vineyard fit for a king, he thought, or at least that's how it looked to him. And it would have been even nicer as a vegetable garden, especially one that belonged to him. And so King Ahab decided to make a business proposition to Naboth, the owner of the vineyard. In 1 Kings 21, verse 2, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Now, that seems like a fair offer, doesn't it? 
But Naboth immediately declined the business proposition and saying in verse 3, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now, right away we see here that Naboth was the kind of man who served God rather than money. Because if it meant violating God's law, he would not sell the family farm, even if it was to his financial advantage to do so. So when King Ahab saw that this little real estate venture of his was kind of slipping through his fingers, he did what any little kid does when he doesn't get his way. He pouted. He got upset about it. In fact, verse 4 tells us, Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen. In other words, he's in turmoil about it. He's pouting on the inside, and it's now showing on the outside because of what Naboth had said to him. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Poor Ahab. What started as a little desire had quickly turned into all-out coveting. He just had to have that vineyard. And when he couldn't get it, let me tell you, he was full of sour grapes. As soon as Jezebel, you may have heard that term, that name before, yeah, it's the same one, Ahab's wife, Jezebel. As soon as Ahab's wife, Jezebel, figured out what was eating her husband, let me tell you, she immediately took charge. She was hardly the kind of woman to let something like God's law stand in the way of what her husband wanted. So she said to her husband in verse 7, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth. And so she did. You say, well, how did she do it? Well, Jezebel's pretty uh, conniving. She bribed some immoral men to accuse Naboth of blaspheming. And since there were two witnesses, the people immediately took Naboth out and stoned him to death, clearing the way for Ahab to plant his precious vegetables. Now, so far it appears King Ahab is getting away with murder here. It appears he's getting exactly what he's coveting. But God is not mocked, and in the end, Ahab's sin of coveting led to his destruction. As soon as Jezebel told him that Naboth was dead, it says in verse 16 that Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth to take possession of it. But, ooh, when he got there, God's prophet Elijah was waiting to meet him and to speak the words that chilled him right down to his soul in verse 19, when Elijah says to him, Have you killed and also taken possession? In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. And then Elijah pronounced the same judgment on his wife as well. The king and queen, in other words, were both thrown to the dogs. Now, if there's one thing we learn in all the stories of the Bible, is that things do not turn out well for people who break the Ten Commandments. They always get what they deserve in the end. King Ahab's downfall started with his discontent. Think about it with me for a moment. The king had most of the finer things in life because he was the king. But rather than giving thanks to God for what he did have, he became obsessed with the one thing he didn't have, a vineyard that was right next to his palace. 
This is how the whole thing started. Ahab wanted something that didn't belong to him. And then he wanted it more and more until finally he coveted it. He hankered after it. And it all came from being discontent. So much of our frustration in life is the same way. It comes from wanting things that God has not given to us. And because of our covetous hearts, we get infected with what you could call this virus, the if-only virus. How many of you know what the if-only virus is? How better yet, how many of you are infected with the if-only virus? Look at it here in your notes. All of our discontent comes from this fatal reasoning. If only I had, then I would be happy. That's the if-only virus. Now how many of us are infected with the if-only virus? King Ahab was infected with this virus. He thought to himself, if I only had what? Naboth's vineyard, then I would be happy in life. But if truth be known, we often think to ourselves the same thing. If only, and then we fill in the blank with our latest desire. If only I made more money. If only I had a new house. If only I had a new spouse, then I would be happy. If only. But once we start thinking this way, there's no end to our discontent. The story is often told of the reporter who asked the late John D. Rockefeller, who at that time was the richest man in America, how much money does it take to be happy? And Rockefeller paused for a moment, smiled, and replied, just a little bit more. How true. Listen to what King Solomon said, who was the richest man in the world at that time. He said in Ecclesiastes 5.10, reading out of the New Living Translation, those who love money will never have enough. How absurd to think that wealth brings true happiness. Arthur Simon, in his book, How Much is Enough, says, once you have your basic needs met, the extras don't add much happiness. And not infrequently, they detract from it by nurturing a habit of desire that breeds dissatisfaction. You see, our problem is not on the outside. It's on the inside. And therefore, it will never be solved by getting more of what we think we want. Listen, if we do not learn to be satisfied right now, In our present situation, whatever it is right now, we will never be satisfied at all. Perhaps you can relate to the following poem here. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. Beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, and it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. 
Man, that, that poem could be the epitaph of so many people here in America. Unfortunately, so many Christians as well. Instead of always saying, if only this, if only that, God calls us to glorify him right now, whatever situation we are in. Period. Is there a, a remedy for the if only virus? I mean, you bet there is. You know what it's called? Contentment. Contentment is the positive side of the Tenth Commandment. And it's the remedy for a covetous heart. As John Cavanaugh wrote in his book, Following Christ in a Consumer Society, we are conditioned to be dissatisfied, cravers, rather than appreciators of the goods of the earth. No wonder Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 6, now there is great gain in godliness with what? Contentment. Hebrews 13, 5 says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, if coveting, listen to me, is the sin that no one wants to admit, then contentment is the secret we all need to learn. And let me be the first to admit, I'm still learning this secret. I haven't nailed down this secret. It's a process of learning this. We're going to find out here just in a minute. The secret to enjoying this kind of contentment is to be so satisfied with God that we are able to accept whatever He has or has not provided. Contentment means wanting what God wants for us rather than what we want for us. Contentment. The secret we all need to learn. So instead of hankering after the wrong things in life, let me leave you with two things to go after, to hanker after here. Number one, first of all, go after gratitude in your life. Go after gratitude. Why? Because a heart of gratitude, get this, it turns what we have into enough. Because as Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. But contentment does not come easily. Have you figured that out? Well, I have. And it doesn't happen overnight either. It's something that we must learn from God himself. Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 through 12, For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every and any situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So maybe we should start each day with this prayer of gratitude by George Herbert. Lord Jesus, you've given me so much. Give me one thing more, a grateful heart. Amen. What a simple prayer to start your day out. Listen, if you want to hanker after something, listen, hanker after gratitude, go after gratitude. But the second thing to go after is God. Go after God. Listen, we cannot change the fact that we are a hankering people. The problem is we hanker after the wrong things 
when the secret to contentment is to hanker after God himself. Asaph learned the secret of hankering after God in Psalm 73. And true, there was a time in his life when Asaph was disappointed with God. He saw wicked men prosper all around him. And he saw himself that he had nothing to show for his own godliness, for following after God. And it made him angry with God. It made him bitter about what life didn't seem to offer to him. But then Asaph learned the secret of being content, and he was able to say to the Lord in Psalm 73, Nevertheless, I am continually with you, Lord. God, you hold my right hand. God, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now listen, it is true. We cannot free ourselves from the society in which we live. God did not call us to live in isolation of the world and of the people around us. We cannot blind ourselves to the commercials to buy more. And we cannot ignore our neighbors who seem to have everything. We understand these things are here to stay. We even understand that our hearts are bent toward coveting. But we can learn to be content in the Lord. And we can learn to be content in whatever he has given us. Because when it's all said and done, God really is all we need. And therefore, all we ought to desire and hanker after. Now, ten commandments that God's given to us. We said from the beginning that these ten commandments, one of the reasons God gave them to us is they are his blueprint for society's behavior, specifically in context for the children of Israel. But in application, even for all of mankind, even for us as believers, it's a blueprint for our behavior in life so that when we live according to these Ten Commandments, the outside world, that is unbelievers, see us, and they're like, wow, something's different. So these commandments, as we seek to live them out, are meant to be a a witness to the world in an aspect of giving God glory. They're a blueprint for our behavior, but they're also a blueprint for blessing as well. But one of the things I hope you have learned throughout this series, as we have seen each of these Ten Commandments, is that, man, I can't keep them. Can you keep the Ten Commandments? Yes, we are to seek to keep them. We are to seek to obey them. They're a blueprint for behavior and blessing. And yet we come to realize, and especially this Tenth Commandment, that, whoa, man, I fall so short of the standard of these Ten Commandments. I try and try, but I just don't keep them perfectly. Anybody here keep these Ten Commandments perfectly? So what are we to do? Do we just throw them out, tear them up? And throw them out the window and say, well, God, I can't keep them perfectly, so I shouldn't even try. Is that the answer to all this? Absolutely not. 
as Paul writes in the book of Romans. The ultimate purpose of these Ten Commandments is to point us to someone else. It's to point us forward, or at least the children of Israel forward, and for us it's to point us backward to who? One who did keep them, one who has kept them perfectly, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. It's to show us that as I try to keep these Ten Commandments, I always fall short. And we begin to look in the mirror and realize, you know what? That tells me something about myself. That tells me I'm a sinner in need of the Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, if we hope to have a relationship with God, and if we hope to gain a home in heaven for all eternity with the Lord, we cannot do it by measuring up to his perfect standard of the commandments, of the law. Why? Because Paul tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, short of the commandments. And later on, he tells us about the gift of Jesus Christ. It's only through the person of Jesus Christ that we can even seek to fulfill these commandments, but ultimately to have our sins forgiven, to have a relationship with God who now looks on us as one who is justified, who's declared righteous in spite of our failure to keep the commandments perfectly. And for that, man, I'm like, whoo, thank God, right? Because we can't keep them perfectly, and yet, when I put my faith and trust in the one who did, and who paid for my sin on the cross with his death and resurrection, then I am justified. I am redeemed by God himself. And in return, I am given the gift of forgiveness of my sins. I'm given the gift of eternal life. And I can now live this life knowing that when I die, my eternity is fixed with the Lord forever. And I now have a power by the Holy Spirit to now live and keep the Ten Commandments. Perfectly? No. I'm still going to fall short, ain't I? Just as you will. And when we do, we look in the mirror of God's word and we admit our sin, we repent of it, and we seek forgiveness. And we know that verse of 1 John 1, 9 where God tells us he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So at the end of this series, the biggest question we can answer then is are you trying to keep the Ten Commandments all on your own? Are you trying to please God on your own by keeping these Ten Commandments? Or do you have a relationship with the one, the only one, that has ever kept them? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? That's the ultimate question this morning. With your heads bowed. And as we come to our response time this morning, listen, I, I want to give us the opportunity to respond. To respond to God's invitation to receive His forgiveness for our sins. To receive the gift of eternal life by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repenting of our sin, acknowledging that I'm a sinner 
in need of the Savior. And so while the praise team sings here, this is our opportunity. This would be your first step to run to Jesus Christ. For those of you that are already believers, and you know that, without a doubt, you've already put your faith and trust, but you're now, whoa, man, I come up so many times, I come up short on these Ten Commandments. Maybe even this morning, you know, I mean, I'm battling, I'm struggling with this sin of coveting. Now's the time to respond and even ask forgiveness and ask God to give you a heart of gratitude and to surrender to Him to go after gratitude and to go after God. Will you respond to the invitation this morning? As the praise team sings, right where you're seated, you can even meet me here at the altar. I'll pray with you, help you, whatever the case may be.